What the fuck is up, world? We're back. Another podcast. This time, joined by a longtime homie from grad school, my boy Rob, soon to be Dr. Robert. And according to the Beatles song that he just turned me on to, right? Getting his PhD. Where are you getting your PhD at specifically, Rob? Um, University of North Texas. University of North Texas, the Mean Green. Yeah. Fucking fantastic. And what exactly are you getting your PhD in, sir, for the people who are listening along? Um, PhD in philosophy and religious studies. Okay, so unlike myself, who, uh, so just a little backdrop knowledge about my boy Rob here. I actually met him in the master's program, philosophy master's program at UTEP a long time ago, man. It's been about what, five years already? Shit. Yeah, it's been a fucking long time already. Um, yeah, and uh, after the master's program, I guess Rob, he went on to pursue the PhD in philosophy because he was bold enough to leave our comforting little city here of El Paso, Texas, whereas I was still so sheltered and decided to stick around here at UTEP and pursue something not necessarily philosophy oriented, though very much in, 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 in accordance with much of what current philosophy is, at least in institutional academias that are looking to move beyond, if you will the traditional Eurocentric scope of, well, I guess the history of philosophy in, in, in on, definitely here in the United States of America. But if we trace our lineage back further, intellectually, intellectual lineage, the, you know, Europe as well. Yeah. So uh, I guess, and the reason I qualify with that is because prior to, you know, turning on this interview, prior to starting the podcast, Rob and I were, as we were catching up, uh, it's one of the things that I found that is actually one of his central focuses on his, in his research. So I was hoping you could enlighten us a little bit about what it is that you got going on there. Um, what is that? Uh, my dissertation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your dissertation, uh, just, uh, your whole trajectory in the last five years, you said five years now. Uh, five years, correct. Has it been five years? Yeah, it has been. Fuck, years. man. Every time, every time you say it, like, oh my God, it's like a, a kick to the grind. Yeah, this fucking PhD shit is no joke, man. But hey, right. it seems like you're right towards the, the cusp already of almost getting there, so. Yeah, I am. The information that you were sharing specifically about things like Smelter Town here in El Paso, Texas. Okay, so um, what I'm writing about is the uh, colon coloniality in the borderland and looking uh, at looking at decoloniality if possible, right? So decoloniality, Walter Mignolo, uh, a lot of other um, Maldonado Torres, a lot of these uh, philosophers are talking about decoloniality. I'm going to be um, touching upon what, what they've done, uh, in the past or what they've talked about. Mainly a lot of it has to do with South America. But, uh, what I do want to focus on is, uh, decoloniality, uh, in, uh, the borderland or coloniality in the borderland and talk a little bit about, um, history of El Paso as well. The way I'm doing that is through, uh, phenomenological, uh, exploration through my own uh, uh, family, my own uh, uh, lineage, uh, my great grandfathers, my great grandmothers, um, and uh, interestingly enough, their story is El Paso's story. So that's what I'm going to be uh, uh, talking about and touching on. And it's a great exploration into uh, the self while I'm doing it. Right, I, I found out a lot about my my, uh, my dad's history, and my dad is kind of like right there with me as as everything I'm learning about. He's like. Uh, 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 right beside me, and it's actually made us a lot closer. It's really cool. It's really cool looking at this. Yeah, that sounds fucking awesome, actually. So there's two things that you said there that I'm going to pick up on here shortly because uh, I think they're very critical, especially for the people who you know are following along. Uh, the first of which being phenomenology, right? Uh, I know me personally, for those of you who have been listening along to the podcast, I've mentioned phenomenolo uh, phenomenology on multiple 
occasions. But if the definition that I've given you is enough information to know, like to take this comfortably, is then that despite what my particular interpretation of phenomenology is, I guess the study in and of itself, it, it, it dictates that it's going to differ slightly. I mean, there is some, you know, unique, there is some correspondence is like among the theory, but just the nature of, of phenomenology alone, it, it dictates that it's going to be subjective between each and every single person. So I was hoping perhaps you can articulate a little bit about what it is that you specifically mean by a phenomenological exploration. Okay, great question. Uh, so uh, phenomenology, uh, quite literally study of experience, right? Um, so looking at uh, the experience of El Paso, or what El Paso is, the idea of El Paso, the city, uh, the culture, and it is a culture, um, is uh, uh, phenomenologically through uh, the experience of my own family, of my own personal experience in this uh, in this town, in this culture. Um, so phenomenology, looking at the, the study of experience, um, you can look at phenomenology in uh, uh, many different things. You can look at it, um, let's say uh, I was to uh, something that I, I talked about in my master's thesis, uh, going to a theater. Watching a film, uh, phenomenology of film is putting yourself uh, into uh, embodying the uh, the main character somehow, uh, feeling what they feel. Um, looking uh, when you watch a movie, you get emotional because you're phenomenologically in that film. You know, you're a part of it. You're not watching Tom Hanks uh, uh, play as Forrest Gump. You're not thinking, oh, this is um, uh, he's not really in this time zone or. If you're watching Pigs of Private Ryan, this is not really war. They're just reenacting it or whatever. But at the time, you're really in that war. You're really uh, running along with Forrest Gump, you know, through the uh, uh, through the west and through the east of uh, America. So actually, it's pretty funny because now that you mentioned, I remember exactly that you did write your 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 master's thesis on uh, on Forrest Gump specifically. Am I correct? Yeah. So uh, actually, I I remember it because uh, actually I'm I'm a huge fan of Forrest Gump, and I think it's a fucking great movie, especially the way that they were able to manage to you know do all the time traveling, if you will, elements of the movie. Right. So I remember reading your master's this year because you presented, you, you defended rather years before mine. I was like, holy shit, man. I got a fucking tall task ahead of me because this was, a, it was, it was actually really well done. I remember. Um, the second question that I wanted to bring up then in regards to the phenomenology, uh, and your statement then is that you are doing it on your family, yeah. which is. Well, for those of us, those of you who have been following along with my podcast, for sure, you will know. For those of us who are enmeshed in the academic game, you should definitely know this. And but for those of you who are, you know, just kind of on, you know, new to the game, it's very highly frowned upon in institutional academia. So the fact that you're able to interject your family, the story of your family, if you will, uh, is actually it's pretty powerful to me. So I was kind of hoping you could give us a little backdrop as to why that's important to you and how it is that you're going about the process. Um, actually, uh, what uh, helped that was the uh, chair of my committee. She wanted to know more about, uh, she, was, she kept telling me, you know, put more of your family in this because I was like looking at uh, decoloniality and what I was writing about. Well, I wish I brought it. Uh, my perspectives. Um, so what I was writing about is a lot of uh, the, the, the say uh, when coloniality started. Okay, uh, right off the bat, the Columbus, uh, move uh, up a little bit. You have Cortez, you have uh, La Malinche. So Malinche is a big thing, especially in El Paso. Malinche means um, uh, a person who's a traitor, right? Um, and why that is. And so there's a lot of uh, uh, discussion in there, a lot of, uh, of course, uh, uh, feminist um, ideals in there as well. Um, and then you uh, move on uh, to some more coloniality with uh, religion. That's where you uh, come up with um, 
Virgin de Guadalupe. So there's a whole lot of things going on that I wanted to talk about. And she was like, okay, well, uh, and then I mentioned my family. She's like, well, we don't put more of that. Uh, uh, this stuff is great. Uh, we, but we know about this. We don't know about your family. Um, and like what you were saying, Smoke Town, start digging more into that. Digging into Smoke Town, digging into this. Um, how is it that, uh, uh, you relate to this? Bring yourself into it, right? So they want to know something uh, original. They want to hear something that hasn't been said before. Um, uh, again, the coloniality with uh, Walter Mignolo. Uh, we've done a great, uh, has a great series of, of books on the coloniality uh, around the globe. Um, and so I'm actually doing it in the borderland, which is a little different. Um, a lot of the stuff I'm doing is in the same vein as Gloria Zaldúa. So Gloria Zaldúa, uh, she talked about herself, uh, her sexuality. Her family, so she kind of put that in there, and so I'm really looking to uh, her and how she did that, uh, and kind of brought that uh, herself out, which was was probably uncomfortable at the time. Oh, absolutely. Uh, I mean, some of the stuff she talked about as well, you know, like her yeah. father and all that kind of shit, but yeah. very fucking, yeah. very cutting edge stuff. <laughs> yeah, and so I'm like, well, let's let's try that. Let's just dig deep into my family, into the self, and see. What I can bring out of that, let's uh, uh, bring up my own uh, philosophy, which, like we were saying earlier, is um, something that a lot of a- academia doesn't want you to do. They don't want you to bring your own philosophy in it. They want you to uh, reach out to the other philosophers, to those to the dead, just redig up the dead. Um, let's have uh, uh, this necromancer kind of sacrifice. Um, <laughs> I like because, that. Uh, uh, but fuck what you think. These guys are far superior to whatever you can think, right? And so, uh, finally, I'm getting my own kind of voice in here, which is I really like. So I'm uh, uh, um, trying to put as much of that in here as I can. God damn that fucking! First of all, the necromancer part. I'm gonna have to steal that. I'm just gonna let you know right now, that comrade here. The intellectual property is gonna be, you know, uh, dis- dis- distributed no. uh, accordingly to the masses, as you will. <laughs> oh, I've been, I've been right? stealing from Anzal Dua left and right. Yeah, and so a little bit more pretext then to the whole Rob's whole statement there and the question in and of itself is going back to our days as graduate students one of the biggest not difficulties it's not a difficulty because obviously we were capable of fucking doing it but I know definitely for me and I think I could possibly speak perhaps on your behalf as well as unwillingness man to fucking continue to have to keep digging up if you will these ancient dead fucking European white male philosophers if you will right like why do I gotta fucking look to Plato to justify an idea that I had entirely independently of any fucking platonic philosophy like my you know I'm versed in the platonic philosophy but just because you know I, I learned from it doesn't necessarily mean that this idea is informed by platonic philosophy so why should i and that's just you know one of the many examples so why should i then have to in turn go and justify my seemingly at least i like to think unique idea by appealing to the authority of some fucking asshole that i have nothing in common with you know what i'm saying yeah. uh, let's, let's appeal to uh the authority of, of the nazi um He's speaking here of Heidegger, yes, who we introduced in the last podcast briefly. <laughs> great philosopher, great philosopher, even uh, Levinas, uh, who was uh, a Jewish philosopher who was in uh, uh, the, uh, the camp, uh, even admitted uh, that Heidegger was one of the greatest which is a lot, a, a very bold, very bold proclamation to make given, you know, the situation they found themselves philosophizing during World War II. So obviously Nazi Germany and all that kind of shit, right? Um, I think Levinas, though, by the way, is a pretty good, uh, uh, a segue, if you will, back to, back to your personal philosophy that you're working on here. And that is because, well, listen, I, love Jules Simon. Jules Simon, I've introduced him on my Instagram page in the picture. 
uh, as my the as my thesis advisor. He was he's he's a down motherfucker. Like the UTEP philosophy program in general can suck a fat one. Like straight up, I have plenty plenty of gripes with the UTEP philosophy program, right? Um, but Jules Simon is the real one there. Okay. However, with that said. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. This is all my personal beliefs specifically. Okay. Just so we're 100% clear. Okay. I'll explain to you my beef with the UTEP philosophy program here shortly. However, let me just state, and this, this is not a knock on Jules Simon. It's a knock on Emmanuel Levinas, bro. The philosophy of the face. The basic gist is the philosophy of the face, according to Levinas, is the way that we quite figuratively face the world. Yes. And that you can read, if you will, the story of a person, yourself included, but definitely that of the other off their face, right? And that by it, it, that the face essentially it this is the butchering part here. It operates as this. It, it creates this space from which we can connect to one another on a more fundamental, phenomenological level. Yes. Now this is powerful stuff. It's very powerful stuff. And for the longest time, I was like, "Damn, Levinas, pretty dope philosopher." And I had always wanted to get a little bit deeper into his shit whenever I had the chance to do so, until. I started my own decolonial process of philosophy and I learned that a the philosophy of the face predated any of the you know Lebanonian conception at least in Germany by thousands of years that is the foundation of Nawat's philosophy man the philosophy of the heart and the face right giving countenance to the heart of the face everything that I just told you right now that's Nawat philosophy bro right now I'm just transposing it onto Lebanonian interpretation as well and what really stuck out to me is that Lebanon's for whatever reason went out of his way to dismiss Nawat philosophy as being primitive as not even being a philosophy in and of itself, as uh, being, yes, Hegel, we can, that's another Jules Simon importation. I'm sorry, Jules, like it is what it is, man. I know we've, we've had this conversation, right? But, but one thing, I can try to leave it. No, it's okay. No worries. Um, okay. Coming back to Lebanon. One of the things that I did have a, um, some uh, problem with, or uh, one, one, one thing uh, about Levinas is uh, the other. You don't really see the uh, the face of the other until you're about to kill that. So it's in that life or death struggle that you see the face. I'm wondering, is there a way to see that beforehand? Maybe I should talk to uh, Jules about this. Uh, maybe you can clear up a little bit. But that's one thing that I've always wanted to uh, put Levinas in a lot of my writing, but I'm like, what? It has nothing to do with that life or death. Struggle, exactly. Right? Yeah, absolutely, man. You see the face of the other without having to kill them, without having to go through that. Um, and so, yeah, that, that, that's one of the things. I'm sure. Uh, I'm sure. Uh, uh, one day, I'm gonna get Jules on this podcast. One day. And I'm going to ask him to clarify a little bit in deeper. I mean, you know, I myself personally could do it because as another thing we talked about is just how readily available all this information is specifically to us, right? And how realistically it's just a matter of us willingly applying ourselves to get the information. So as much as I would love to have drills on here, the reality is I could just do it myself too. You know what I'm saying? Um, but however, the reason that I bring that specific example up, the Levinas example uh, in, in general, is because it goes back to our idea of having to justify our own personal ideas, people like you and I who have nothing in common with Levinas, man. And when I say nothing in common, I mean it quite literally in the sense that, dude, he was philosophizing almost 100 years ago. It's like 75, right? Yeah, let's... If we contextualize it in a European understanding of space and time, he was philosophizing on a different fucking continent, man. 
right? In a complete different epoch of time that you and I have no idea about. I mean, personally, I've never been in Europe. You know what I'm saying? So I don't know what European, what Europe, what the space, if you will, is like in Europe, right? Uh, furthermore, I've, at least for what I'm, what I, what I believe, right? Uh, I could be wrong. Never existed during the fucking early 1900s. You know what I'm saying? So that whole space and time is completely foreign to me. So in that primitive respect, yes, the philosophy is fucking, you know, it's, it's like, oh, it's very alien and foreign to me. Uh, on a different, on a different, more fundamental level, it doesn't necessarily apply, let alone relate to me outside of the overarching human experience, right? So what? I, even then, man, like I've never been put in a position where I have to kill somebody. You know what I mean? So that that alone is gonna, pre, uh, you know, from a phenomenological perspective, gonna pre-qualify me or rather uh, limit me from being able to, right, uh, understand this philosophy completely. But furthermore, um, yeah, it's, it, it, I have no intellectual or ancestral even. Uh, uh, heritage, a tie to that uh, philosophical heritage that he's discussing. So then why in turn should I be forced to ground all my philosophy and thus the experience that I've had that has enabled me to arrive at these ideas through a philosopher that I have literally nothing fucking in common with. Correct. Um, and so uh, that's another thing about uh, philosophy uh, as we know it is comes from this uh, Eurocentric mindset, right? Uh, so Europeans, they said this is uh, these are the rules. This is what makes philosophy, and anything outside of this uh, uh, box is not philosophy. So um, if we take our ancestors, the Aztecs, and try to uh, say, well, this is uh, philosophy. This is uh, uh, this is philosophy. No, that's just false, or that's just 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 philosophy. Um, uh, or anything. Let's uh, let's go to the Diné, the uh, Navajo, right? Uh, Lakota, Dakota, um, all those tribes, uh, let's say what they had to do, what they, uh, their ideas, is that philosophy? Is that, uh, Native American philosophy, uh, or what they would call Indian philosophy? Um, no, no, that's just, just, just culture again. That's just an idea. That's just that the other. That doesn't qualify unless it, uh, uh, fits in the box that uh, the Europeans have created. Then otherwise, no, it's not philosophy. And then it doesn't come to that. So, uh, why is it that only this is the only this is the only philosophy that they have created, right? Um, I have a big problem. Yeah, and I mean, it's a rightful problem to have. I don't know if you've read it. I'm sure uh, maybe you have. It was a very famous article that was published. It was an op-ed in the New York Times that stated, uh, "Oh damn, what the fuck was the name of specifically the title of the article?" Oh, I'm drawing a blank here, but essentially, oh yeah, here we go. If philosophy won't, uh, oh fuck, I just lost it again. But the basic gist of the article was that. Why is it that the philosophy department, unlike most other studies, right, are is uniquely titled the philosophy department, despite the fact that it is clearly, clearly devoted strictly to white European wealthy men, right? right yeah. So the idea here is that, and uh, if philosophy, oh, here we go. If philosophy won't diversify, let's call it what it is. That was the name of the article, okay? And the article, the, the, the op-ed, it goes on to state that, you know, they give the statistics worldwide and here nationally in the United States of America of how many other philosophical traditions are included into the academic discourse. And the idea then is that um, these, uh, it's, it's kind of a point that you're bringing up is that these uh, competing, if you will, epistemologies, if they are to be considered philosophy, they're always going to be measured in accordance to their ability to uphold the European narrative, despite the fact that many of these philosophies have not as their start or end point anything that the European tradition does as well, right? So the idea then ultimately for the article is, okay, so what are we really doing here? Because we have no problem, for instance, with a, with, with a, a, a Chicano studies program where it's quite clearly defined that the philosophies and the literatures that you're going to be reading here are of the Chicano movement. Yes? 
And it would seem weird then to try to introduce something, say, from a European tradition of philosophy from 500 years ago into a Chicano study program because it's not a fucking, it's not, it's not, it's, it's a Chicano study program, right? So anything from outside the Chicano study is, it seems irrelevant, right? So then why in philosophy are we upholding the same sort of model in the sense that whenever a, a, a competing epistemology that is not from the European tradition is introduced, it's always dismissed as either not a philosophy or more importantly, measured of its ability or uh, uh, to uphold the European Western tradition of philosophy, right? So again, uh, in regards to how it is, you know, with your philosophy, it's one of the things that brought me much joy in our little, in our little, uh, 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 little session that we had before, uh, you know, starting the podcast is hearing that, yeah, it, that you're being, you're being enabled. It sounds like your fucking, uh, your PhD advisor it sounds like a really cool person, right? That she's enabling you to transcend this very this very limiting model that we found ourselves in and uh, and allowing you the space to create new shit that i personally hope will fucking breathe life into what is clearly this is my personal opinion right clearly a dying institution and that is academia man right well um uh, like we're saying uh it's hard to talk about you got studies um or anything like that uh without conforming to that whole European uh, standard because uh, the academic institution itself is based on a Eurocentric idea. Um, and so we've been talking about that lately in, uh, so we have this decoloniality group at the university. Um, uh, UNT is trying to move toward, uh, hopefully, uh, Latinx studies. Um, I'm the only Latinx philosopher. <laughs> Hava Schwartz is on there as well. Oh, is she? Yeah, but she's okay. going yeah. to show up. Okay. Hava, come on, Hava. I'm the only one. Yeah. Hava, just in case you're wondering, she was uh, another person that was in our, she was, a, I, I believe, a year after yeah. us in the master's cohort. So we're speaking of her as if you all have familiarity of her. Now you do, right? <laughs> uh, okay. So um, so I'm the only one in there. So, they're, uh, uh, so I'm, I'm going to these meetings and we're, we're talking. And we're talking about decoloniality and how would you... Be uh, uh, colonized, let's say, the uh, academia, uh, or talk about uh, decolonization in academia is in order to do so correctly would be difficult because academia itself is colonized. Yeah, absolutely. So it's very difficult to really understand how we can get to that point. So we're in a paradox. Yeah, absolutely. No question. And I think that fucking paradox is a perfect, it helps reveal, if you will, my statement as to why I personally believe that academia in general is a dying institution. Um, I, I'll start at the surface level. If you just look around, you see the popularity of a lot of uh, intellectuals like Sam Harris, fucking for all intents and purposes, even Jordan Peterson. I'm not sure what your familiarity is with him, right? But there's a lot of these public intellectuals, if you will, that are exposing the deficits and the faults in uh, academic discourse, right? And uh, when it comes to this coloniality, there's no question that that's, that that's also one of them, man. And it's one of the reasons why I personally don't ever feel as though my philosophy will ever fucking be able to take hold within an academic institution. And I'm going to venture to say, perhaps even yours as well. And I, I don't know what your personal thoughts are on this. I'll definitely allow you to, you know, to, to, to state them here shortly. But me personally, I am of the opinion that, I mean, you just mentioned it right now, man, you are the only quote unquote Latinx person in your decolonial group, right? Which leads me to believe that the majority of them are, if the statistics of the article that I was mentioning earlier, the, if the philosophy won't decolonize, let's call it what it is, or rather uh, diversify, it was probably white people. Yes, for lack of a better term, males or females? Uh, both. 
Both? Okay. Like uh, even equally distributed mix? Um, yes, actually, yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, one great thing is a strong um, uh, feminist doing. Uh, 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 that's also a definite plus, right? Um, now, before we get a little bit deeper into this, actually, I should even qualify. It's actually a, a, one of the reasons why I have such a fucking big problem right now with the UTEP Master's Philosophy Program, right? Uh, yo, I'll just state it quickly and then I'll get onto the original point. And that is, how is it that a fucking tier one university on the borderland has no Mexican philosophers in its department? Has no Chicano or Chicana philosophers in his department. It's nothing but white people, bro. Fucking, like I said, Jules, you're a damn motherfucker, dog. I'll tell you all the time, right? But who else? You got Caroline, you got Alexander, not even a PhD. You know what I'm saying? You have all these people there. You have the lady who took the job over a fucking Mexican woman from the borderland with equally qualified uh, credentials. And they gave it to a white woman from fucking Pennsylvania, dog. And she came here and was teaching Mexican-American philosophy. You know what I'm saying? So when I say, man, fuck you, said philosophy, that's, that's where that's coming from. And it goes back to this whole point of what you're saying here is like, yeah, I'm the only Latin, quote unquote, I like to say quote unquote, because I'm not a fan of the term Latinx, right? But uh, the only Latinx person, if you will, in that program. And it, it gets back to the uh, to my initial critique. And that is that I don't feel as though my philosophy will ever take hold within an academic institution that at best, at best, it'll be fucking commodified by those very people who will take the best elements of it and be like, oh shit, hood philosophy. Hell yeah, Isaac, this shit's fucking dope. But when it comes time to actually implement the hood philosophy, they'll be like, I don't know about all that guy, but we'll definitely teach it as, you know, uh, 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 a possible reading, if you will. And we'll try to include it into the, into the, into the syllabus or whatever the case might be, suggested reading type shit. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, uh, uh, token kind of uh, idea. Yes, exactly. Right. So I don't know what your personal stance is when it comes to this and infiltrating, if you will, the the academic institutions. But I'd love to hear it. Mm. Uh, what do you mean? What do you mean by that? Uh, yeah. So sort of uh, diversity in there. Um, not even so much of diversity because it's about, I don't know, I don't shit, man. I'm just going to be fucking even more explicit with you, right? Because I think, uh, before we were setting up this, this is just giving a little pretext to the conversation that we're having now for those of us who are listening. Uh, when Rob reached out to me, one of the things that he did mention is he wanted to talk to me about hood philosophy. So let's fucking get a little bit deeper into the hood philosophy here, man. Right. Uh, it's the understanding that. Just because you have a person of brown color or black color, just because you have a gay philosopher or whatever, a woman philosopher, that doesn't mean that the colonial ideas have fucking disappeared, man. At best, it means that they've been fucking transmogrified and shit into brown skin. You know what I'm saying? Uh, that you have, because I, I had in my PhD program here at UTEP, brown professors that uphold and upheld the same fucking academic colonial bullshit that it is that we were talking about, man. It's funny because we would be sitting there and on in, in one breath, we would be talking about how fucking colonialism is evil and how we got to decolonize academia and all that kind of shit. And then on the very next breath, they would turn around and implement their colonial practices. They would turn around and implement the colonial structure. And it's just like, man, what the fuck, dude? Like it's it it's almost seemingly impossible to try to overcome the colonial foundation, if you will. Of the institutional university facility. Yeah. Oh, based on that colonial concept. It seems yeah, exactly to me at least, right? And so the reason that I ask you, you know, to maybe if you have dif differing beliefs is because I understand, you know, I I'm able to understand that my position is it's it's not uniquely mine. Others share it, you know what I'm saying? But it's not necessarily correct. And that's not entirely wrong per se, 
But what I'm trying to say more specifically is I'm able to step back and understand that I un- undoubtedly have fucking faults in my in my thinking in my logic, right? And if any, uh, if they're going to be introduced, it's definitely going to be through a discourse practice where you know uh, of someone who would understand, and you more than most definitely will because you, like I, am what I would consider at least a Chicano man from the fucking borderland who is trying to go through the institutional academic fucking system and undo what we perceive to be many of the grave injustices within it, right? Uh, so that's one of the things I'm um, constantly asking myself, is this going to be interesting enough? Um, is anybody going to take it seriously? Is this something that people want to hear? Uh, or is it just going to be, if, if anything, if like you get a job, it's going to be a token Latin um, uh, professor, or they're just throwing me a fucking bone. Is that what it is? Is that what I'm working for? Uh, that kind of thing now to be clear getting thrown that bone because capitalism right is not a bad thing it's not a bad thing (laughs) you know what i'm saying um yeah it's it's, uh uh, it is a difficult thing it's a unique position that people like ourselves find ourselves in man because people like you and i not just you and i though plenty of others and that is that on the one hand we're fucking we we do want to change shit We, we recognize where the system is flawed and we want to change it. But on the other hand, we got to fucking pay bills, bro. Yeah. We got to provide food on the table. We got to put a fucking roof over the head. And given the path that we have chosen, it it seems almost counterintuitive to try to go about doing so in a way that is directly confronting the very fucking institution that is going to enable us to put fucking food on the table. You know what I'm saying? And you know, it's just frustrating because it's not something that someone who upholds, uh, irrespective of their you know identity, the, the 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 common Western European conception of not just philosophy now, but just academia in general, they don't have to deal with that kind of shit. You know what I mean? So the question now becomes is, is it even a worthy enterprise? What do you think? Um, academia is a worthy enterprise? I think so. Yeah. I'm saying what we are trying to do specifically, the decoloniality of the academia. Oh, yeah, that's, that's true. Um, so it's something I was thinking about. Like we want to uh, tear the system down, but then... Like you said, we need to put food on the table, right? Um, I, it's still something I'm working for. I, I, I want to bring something new to the table, but um, uh, where am I going to bring it? You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, but, however, to be fair, like I said before we started this shit, it's there. The fucking the people are there, right? Where they are not, they're there too, right? However, they're there behind a fucking paywall, right? Like they have to pay. That's one of the things that pisses me off, man, is that like, I'm, I'm thankful for all the knowledge that I've accrued, but a lot of it, the fact that I had to fucking pay to access it, it's like, God damn it, this fucking institutional academic paywall, you know what I mean? Tuition, if you will. It's frustrating, right? Uh, but thankfully, people like ourselves, we have the ability to move beyond that paywall to a different paywall, if you will, through the uh, online, uh, you know, uh, uh, format or whatever. But the point here being is, when it comes to this decolonial process specifically, right? You, and I'm going to let you explain a little bit more now of your, of your side of it. You clearly have so much to offer, man. Like you were just telling me the history of smelter town, the history of, you know, uh, just all kinds of shit. Right. And it's, I believe of par- of, par- of paramount importance that that kind of information gets, you know, distributed because you can't, 
you can't right, if you will, the wrongs of the past. You can't fix shit like, you know, current immigration reform if people aren't aware of the history that informs these very topics in the first place. It's the same paradox that we're discussing here with uh, ac- with with academic institutions, right? So when it comes to you and your studies, it, it it it's it's frustrating because I personally believe it's important, right? But how are people like you and I and others who are tr- you know trying to engage along the same trajectory ever going to be able to solidly put our foot down in such a way where we're able to implement these changes? Um, I think well the, the way that we we can uh, do that. Uh, well, first of all, we need to re- like what I'm do what I'm doing is reminding people of the past that. Uh, that even though we're trying to uh, make progress, we can't forget where we came from. We can't forget that this should happen. But, uh, looking at what I'm doing with uh, uh, Smelter Town, uh, a lot of people don't know about it. I definitely did not know about it like up until 20 minutes ago. So can you explain a little bit of the history about it first? Um, yeah, so Smelter Town, uh, when Astarka was put up uh, so many years ago, um, it was a, a, a very big business, so there were, there were several kind of Asarco kind of place, uh, places that were um, uh, that were up. El you Paso know, was one of them. Uh, there were a few in Mexico. Uh, I think uh, around Zacatecas, there was, there was quite a few. Um, and so uh, they were they were creating great jobs, right? And so here in the borderland, that was a big thing. Um, and uh, a lot of people that work there, uh, Mexican immigrants, they, they brought immigrants over, uh, and they uh, live right there in this little town, little smelter town, uh, which was very toxic. Um, they weren't wealthy at all. Of course, the people who owned the circle were very wealthy, uh, still are, and um, and it was one of the one of the things that brought business uh, to El Paso, and in fact, also that helped bring the railroad. Uh, from Pacific, uh, Union, uh, Pacific, and there was, uh, two others. So it started off with four rivers. Uh, but anyway. Um, yeah, so it started, uh, so, uh, El Paso, uh, one of the great, one of the things that made it, uh, big was that, uh, a sub, a big fucking, uh, uh, phallic power that was <laughs> that, uh, helped, you know, make this town well enough. You know what, man? This is going to speak to my ignorance of the city of El Paso in general. But honestly, I just, I don't really go to the fucking West Side that often anyway, right? Is that fucking giant dick thing still standing out there? No, no. no? It, it came down, um, I think, uh, when did it come down? A few years ago, actually. Okay. Okay. I think, you know what? Now that I think about it, I have a little bit of memory of it coming down. Um, which is funny because, the the majority of the memories that I do have of it is it being erect, you know, pardon the terrible fucking pun there. <laughs> but um You can't get away from it. You can't. It's impossible, right? Uh but from from childhood, like driving that area, well not just still up until adulthood, like I said, I for all intents and purposes, I still believe that it was up there, right? But um <coughs> Do your thing, Doc. It's all good. Uh, when it comes to the Asarco in general, there's two things that immediately, immediately come to mind. Okay. The first of which being how it's such a blatantly obvious fucking continuation of these very colonial practices that we were just discussing. We did so in the form of institutional academia, right? But now we've transgressed, if you will, the, the walls of fucking institutional higher learning facilities. And we're into the real world now, man, because, you know, what's the difference realistically of like how you mentioned these industrialists that are mining the resources of our fucking 
you know, of our land here at the direct expense of the peoples and the population. Uh, I believe you mentioned something about the people that were getting sick in that area and all that kind of shit, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and what's, what's the difference between that and, you know, what the fucking Spaniards did 500 years ago when they came here and first started taking the gold from here, right? They're, they're the very blatant uh, 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 exploitation of the land that we, that we are so closely... Well, okay, let me rephrase that. I don't want to say so closely uh, related to because my relationship to the land is pretty close in El Paso, as I believe yours in the sense that I was born here. Yes, but my family wasn't. My family, Im- well, I don't want to say immigrated because that implied some form of uh, 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 non-belonging to this to this country. But it's very you know problematic when you start thinking about borders. They're from this fucking continent is what I'm trying to say, right? So I don't want to when I say uh, uh, when they when they immigrate here, I don't want to give the idea that they're from uh, elsewhere. No, they're from this continent. They're just not from this particular part of the continent that we call El Paso, right? Uh, my grandfather specifically is from Durango, Mapimi, and my grandmother is from the Nacimiento area of Coahuila and near Nuevo Leon and all that kind of shit, right? Yeah, so they come from there. And they work their way up north. They continue these ancestral fucking migrant routes that our peoples have been going through for tens of fucking thousands of years, right? And, you know, they, uh, my mom, she was born in Juarez. She was raised in Juarez. And it wasn't until I was born that you know, she made her way over here before I was born, obviously, right? Uh, uh, but, you know, she didn't get her citizenship until I was fucking already in middle school, man. So up until middle school, it might very possibly have been that my mother could have been deported, right? Without my knowing, you know, that type of shit. That's the kind of shit that we're living under. And this is the, we're talking, what I'm, this is what I'm alleging to when I say that the academic institutions, the fucking smeltering facility that was here in El Paso, the exploitation of the land and the peoples and all that kind of shit. It's the same process that's been going on on this continent for over 500 years now, right? And then, um, the second thought, and we'll tie it back into this other one, is just the straight up environmental racism associated with this fucking smeltering facility, man. And I believe you, you're talking about a little bit more. Did you have anything more that you had to say about that specifically? Or? Uh, no, it's going in that same vein, what you're talking about. So, uh, there was a lot of that environmental racism. Uh, a lot of the people, again, smelter towns right there. And they know, they, they knew that it was uh, people were dying, uh, the, the kids were dying at a young age. If you go to the smelter uh, town cemetery, You'll see a lot of children there. You'll see a lot of only like one year, one years old, maybe five years old. My great grandfather died uh, after working there. Um, let me see, he was about fifty something. Right, he's very young. Yeah, yeah, very, very young. Um, and so a lot of people uh, were getting sick, and they just kept going with it. Like, well, well what are we going to do? Right, and there's a fucking little town right there. And you know how you're saying that you had never really seen such a town. Well, that's a part of the design, right? They don't want you to see this fucking thing because it's way at the bottom there. Fucking right? asshole bastard bitches. That shit makes me so fucking mad. Yeah. yeah. That is such a smart thing to do. And it's so fucking frustrating because of how smart it is for them to have done that because you're absolutely fucking right. Wow. They literally hid that shit in plain sight. Exactly. It's fucking was right there. And it took me 33 years to learn about it. Sitting here fucking 20 minutes ago talking to you and finding out for the first time that there was an actual town in that area because you know like i said my knowledge of that fucking phallic tower it, it was just in passing you know what i'm saying i never fucking went to Osarco, but i remember specifically the tower right the people listening to this right now from el paso who are from here who have lived here or who have visited here you know exactly what the fuck we're probably talking about as well right but the idea that there was a whole fucking town around that area that is Something that I was never, I never knew. I just, this complete foreign knowledge to me, right? And then to know that there's also a cemetery there, man, like 
fuck, that is deep, bro. And especially, you know, if, if you'd allow me to continue the, 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 the correlation here, what's the difference, man, between fucking, you know, the European people here bringing smallpox initially and causing the, you know, the initial, uh, you know, setting foot, if you will, what led to the initial genocide of the 100 million indigenous peoples of this continent via, you know, biological uh, germ warfare. And then subjecting them to the fucking, you know, the radiation from the smeltering facility that's going to lead them to getting cancer at well, fucking, you said a year old yeah. at fucking 55 years old, man. That's not an old person. A one year old. Don't even get me started with that. You know what I'm saying? So, you know, uh, to tie it back all in with, the, with, with, with a little bit of the point that I was trying to get to very clumsily, I should add from earlier. It's, you know, this is not the kind of shit that fucking people who are upholding the European tradition of philosophy have to worry about. You know what I'm saying? This is shit that people like you and me and your family, my family never worked at Osako, right? My family will have the story of the Bracero because that's how my grandfather came here, right? But that's the kind of shit that these European philosophers are never going to have to worry about. You know what I'm saying? So when they tell us that we can't, you know, import, if you will, our own experiences and our own philosophies into our stories, like in our master's program, uh, you know, they're, they're essentially in this very subtle, low-key way, serving to continue the erasure of, you know, history, man, history that needs to be told, right? Rights that are wrongs that need to be righted and so on. Um, I'm going to touch on this and then go to uh, something else real quick. But, but you mentioned the Bracero, the Bracero program. Yes, yes. On this next page uh, interview I just gave before I came here, we just talked about that, 1940 to 1960. That's fucking, that's hilarious. Uh, synchronicity, bro. <laughs> connection. Uh, one thing I did want to uh, touch upon uh, what we were talking about um, is, uh, so also the uh, circle in the railroads, uh, railroads in El Paso were a big thing uh, because this was the only way that uh, people, uh, well, the majority of what came to Mexico, um, all our pro- uh, products and everything was through El Paso. Um, there was uh, the uh, was the Intercontinental Railroad or International Railroad, whatever. I'm butchering that. Um, but that uh, when they made that America back in the early 19th century, um, they, the tracks weren't uh, uh, that steady, or um, they didn't use them as often because we couldn't carry heavy cargo, especially from the Gold Rush in Mexico and California, and all the kind of shit ore that they were getting from that. Uh, the soldiers during the Civil War, all paying through El Paso, so because we had uh, stronger railroads and all that shit. Um, and so one of the things was uh, Native Americans uh, were also uh, uh, part of the, uh, those who were uh, putting the trash together, again, uh, immigrants to Mexico, and there was a lot of people being displaced. Um, not only Native Americans, but also some of the resources that Mexico needed um, was uh, uh, being displaced by uh, that railroad system um, that went to California. And so there was, uh, again, Native Americans working on that, as well as uh, Mexican immigrants. So uh, they were essentially doing that to their own people. They were fucking them over uh, to build this railroad um, by these wealthy white people, right? That whole thing, it was kind of stepping on their own uh, to do this. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fucking heartbreak looking at this past and uh, what happened. Uh, uh, yeah. I mean... <sighs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's certainly heartbreaking, right? But I think, at least for me personally, an important thing to not, you know, lose sight of is the fact that it's not just consigned to the past, that it's still, it's still happening, man. Like it's still here. You know what I'm saying? Uh, I guess the most obvious example that I can give you about, you know, uh, in regards to the, situ- the situation you just mentioned 
is the arena that they just built downtown, right? Where they displaced the entire neighborhood of Duranguito. One of the few fucking, you know, cultural landmarks here in the city of El Paso that remain, right? A pre-colonial even in many, in some instances, if you will, right? But certainly uh, a colonial landmark, you know, uh, in terms of the history of the city, when you have people like fucking Pancho Villa that came through and, you know, they, they posted up in, in Duranguito, but all that shit was destroyed and the entire community was, you know, comprised mostly of low income already, re- or, uh, low income retirees. They were forced, they were forcefully displaced. There's video of the of El Paso police literally fucking protecting the destruction of their homes, right? All for the sake of a fucking a, a, a ballpark that who does it benefit, man? It benefits again the foster family, right? And it, it benefits the O'Rourke people and all that kind of shit. The wealthy fucking elite white people of this city, bro. And it's it's just it's frustrating to see how it's still very much in place and how as despite all the seeming progress that we've made very little has actually been you know changed that's you know what i'm saying so to circle it back around to the whole actual like the actual philosophy part of it right it's not the side of the philosophy element of the podcast is how if at all can it be changed is it through bringing it to light is it through you know moving beyond theory and straight up into action now just so we're clear that's not a call or incitement for any sort of fucking you know transgressive behavior towards the already established institutions of this country so much as it is uh, an acknowledgement of historically speaking change is only ever made through boots on the ground type shit you know what i'm saying and ultimately more importantly i guess the ultimate you know where it circles down where it always you know always hovers but never necessarily touches down but i will do so here is is it even fucking worth it is it even worth it you know what i'm saying 